More than ever before, Christian women today are bombarded with the empty promises of our secular age. Idols that promise fulfillment, but ultimately only deliver pain. Whether it's the lie that our worth is in our looks and abilities, that sex is cheap, that abortion is a right, that we can control our sexual identity, or that marriage and family will complete us, all of these empty promises are lies that run counter to the clear teaching of Scripture and God's good plan for us. In our interview today, I'm talking with Jen Oshman. Jen has served in women's ministry for over two decades as a missionary and a pastor's wife. She's the mother of four daughters and the author of Cultural Counterfeits, Confronting Five Empty Promises of Our Age and How We Were Made for So Much More from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Jen, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway podcast. Thanks for having me. This is a joy. In your new book, you you make this really interesting argument. You start off uh, by saying that a, a big claim that in the last few decades especially, um, women have been uh, shown some winsome and convincing idols, that's the phrase that you use, uh, that have been especially dangerous and influential in our culture. So I wonder if you could, uh, we'll get into these more in detail in a little bit, but what are some of those idols that you see as being particularly winsome in our world today. Sure. Yeah. Well, I have been in women's ministry now for a couple decades and I'm the mom of four daughters. So this is something that I'm really sensitive to, Mm, something I'm on the lookout for, something that, you know, women are coming up to me at Bible study and at church and in my discipleship relationships and friendships. So I I really have a front row seat to some of the things Mm. that I see our culture promising women, over promising and under delivering. Mm. So I go after these five that I feel like come up over and over again, where I see just damage taking place, women walking wounded for having believed the cultural narrative Mm. that these idols will give them life. Mm. So the five idols, and not that this is an exhaustive list by any means, but they're just the five that I see repeatedly wrecking havoc in the church um, and amongst my friends. The five idols would be the first one is outward beauty and ability. Mm. The second is cheap sex, hookup culture. The third is the abortion industry. The fourth idol is the LGBTQIA spectrum. And then the fifth idol tends to surprise people. It's sort of the hidden one inside the church, but it's the idol of marriage and motherhood. Mm. So the five of these all relate in some way to our our, um, identity as women, our sexuality, our gender, our relationships, where we often look for hope or empowerment or identity. And the world or the church says, here's where you'll find it. Yeah. Whether on purpose or subconsciously. Yeah. And we go there and, and it doesn't deliver. So yeah, that, that last one in particular that I want to definitely dig into. Because okay. uh, I think a, a lot of our listeners, you know, Christians who who uh, love the Bible, believe the Bible, love the gospel, um, they might resonate with a few of those, but then that last one kind of sounds like, but you're, you're talking about, these are things that you're seeing not just outside the church, but actually in the church. These are influences that, that we should be in guard on. Right. I mean, these are things, this is the cultural air we're breathing. Mm. Since the 1960s, you know, since the sexual revolution, the counterculture, those first four have been just increasingly prominent. Yeah. We and, and we inside the church can sort of look out there and critique them. The truth is, 
they're happening to all of us inside the church, whether we admit it or not. Mm. All four of those are things that women in the pews are wrestling with all the time. And sometimes we pretend like we're not, but we mm. are. Yeah. And then that fifth one, I think, is one that's just been maybe more subtle, um, of that we have maybe put more hope and identity and power in the status of mm-hmm. marriage and motherhood mm-hmm. than God ever intended. Yeah. So you, yeah, you say that uh, these idols have been, I think the, the words you use are wildly successful <laughs> uh, in drawing women in. And so so just take a step back. Why do you think that is? Why have uh, these idols um, been so effective? Yeah, that's, I think that's a multi-layered answer. Um, you know, if we just maybe take a 30,000 foot view on that question, we can go back to the garden and we can go back to our our tendency, our sin nature to look for meaning and identity and power in anything mm. other than our creator, other than our good and kind maker. You know, that was Eve and Adam's first mistake and we've been making it ever since. So idolatry is not new. This is idolatry is as old as we are. Mm-hmm. But some of these specific idols that I take on and they're not new either. Of course, King Solomon is correct. Nothing is new under the sun. Um, but I'm just writing for our age. I'm writing for my peers, yeah. the women, you know, a, a bit ahead of me and a bit after me. And so these specific idols, I think, have really have managed to take root and be wildly successful. I realize I use big words or, you know, (laughs) overemphasizing words there. But um, I just have seen them cause so much damage. And I think they have since the sexual revolution. Because we, for the last, you know, several decades as women have really been looking for where's our place? What's our, where does our identity come from? Mm -hmm. Where does our power come from? What, where can we be working and moving and making a difference? And um, as we've been sort of searching for that place as a a secular society, as a culture as a whole, I think we've landed in some really damaging places. Yeah, it does seem like the, those idols that you, you listed there, they do seem in some pretty powerful and direct ways connected to issues of identity, mm-hmm. of issues of personhood and how we view ourselves, how we view ourselves in relation to other people. Yeah. Is there something to that? Like, why is that identity component so central to this? Yeah. Well, again, I think it's as old as we are. Ident- the identity issues have been around for millennia since, since Adam and Eve. But I think since um, the sexual revolution in particular, identity has been tricky for women. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is that in the 1960s, we, as, and it, of course there were decades building up to this. It's not like it came out of a vacuum, but mm-hmm. for the sake of brevity, we don't need to go into hundreds of years of history. But in the 1960s, um, we as a culture began to sort of look at issues of equality and issues of um, power and empowerment and who matters, who's valuable in society and who isn't valuable. And so as a people, as a Western civilization, we determined that it is sort of somehow better, more valuable to be out in the working world, to be exerting oneself in the in a career field or um, in somewhere outside of the home. Mm. And um, we, for, for many reasons, related to the sexual revolution, as well as related to things like the advent of birth control and things that were happening in the Supreme Court, we somehow deemed the male body as the normal, better body. Hmm. We said, you know, if, if men can work, then women can work. And if men can have sex and not have babies, then women can have sex hmm. and not have babies. And I think it was subconsciously and maybe somewhat subtle, but throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, as a people, we decided it is better to be a man. It is better to have to, to norm the male body than the female body. Hmm. It's better to have sex without consequences 
than to plan for and celebrate and anticipate with joy Mm. the creation of new life. And so that came through birth control, that came through abortion, that came through hooking up, all of these idols that I start to list. It's the, it's because we said, let's do it this way rather than this way. Yeah. Rather than pausing culture, pausing work, pausing life and saying, let's welcome in new life. Yeah. We said, no, let's stop. So life. does that, then that in your mind, is that, does that constitute like a, almost like belittling of, of distinctly female qualities so. and experiences? Yeah, absolutely. I think the female body was devalued mm. and we devalued the role of women. I mean, the Lord God created us to be co-creators or sub-creators with him. I mean, he made both male and female required for procreation and humans are precious. We are the only thing made in God's image. And his desire in calling on us is to cultivate creation and to go and multiply. Mm. And so there's, there's nothing more precious in creation than humans and in our sin nature and in our idolatry, we have somehow, you know, put ourselves above God's goodwill, God's good design and instead said, no, let's, let's not procreate. Um, let's have sex without consequences. That is better. That's the higher good. Yeah. It's so interesting though, because I think um, maybe someone who, would be listening and, and wouldn't be uh, a Christian or maybe not uh, in kind of our neck of the woods, so to speak, would say, well, you know, but the goal of a lot of that progress in my mind was uh, to push back against the devaluing of women. So they, they would say that their goal was kind of the opposite mm-hmm. of what you're saying actually happened. So, so how do you think about that? What, were there things in the culture that, um, that were kind of uh, sending mixed messages about um, women's value in place. Sure. I mean, absolutely. We get, we get everything (laughs) so mixed up in, in our human minds and in our sinful nature. And it's really, it's grievous. Uh, It's really grievous. So I know my secular friends and even myself, as I've sort of wrestled with these issues for decades now, uh, my secular friends would definitely say, no, it's, it's to protect women. Mm. It empowers women that there is birth control and there's the opportunity for abortion. And I'm not you know, I'm not making blanket statements about something like birth control necessarily mm. per se. Um, I'm definitely making a blanket statement about abortion, but um, I know that the perspective is that that empowers women and that protects women. But the sociological evidence just does not bear that out. Mm. That's actually not true. So my, I go back and go, well, then why? Why did we do that? Why didn't we as a community say, let's protect life, let's protect families, Mm. let's create a corporate structure, let's create neighborhoods and schools and a way of living that normalizes having babies and bringing them up in family units that treasure them and protect them and care for them. Mm. Um, But you know, all idols are good things that we turn into ultimate things. Mm. And that is really what happened with sex. I mean, it's called the sexual revolution because revolutions change everything. So we took this one good gift and turned it into our highest good gift. And there's so many great books out there that can help us understand um, why that is. And Mm -hmm. we can look back to Freud and Rousseau and other thinkers over the last several hundred years to get at how sex, you know, sort of got put on a pedestal higher. Became this like totalizing Totalizing. topic that Mm -hmm. just affects everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, um, it's so in so in the water that we drink and the air yeah. that we breathe that I don't think people even recognize. Actually, the way we have set things up is a devaluing of what the human body, the woman, a woman's body, can mm. do. It's a devaluing of who God created us to be. Yeah, yeah. So speak to that a little bit. The the cultural waters. What are the biggest influences in our culture today that maybe we don't even think of as influences that are pushing these these idols on women? Sure. Man, I think we see it in every sphere. Of course, the one that comes to mind 
so quickly and first is social media because that is in the palm of every woman's hand. (laughs) Whether she's nine years old or all Mm. the way up to maybe 60 years old, that smartphone with social media is in the palm of her hand. So it's really discipling us. It's shaping us as women. Um, One statistic that I found amazing as I was researching the book for the um, specific chapter on outward beauty and ability is that teen girls are looking at media on, on their phones for nine hours a day. Wow. And that's not for not academic purposes. So not homework, but nine hours a day. Hmm. That's the average currently. It'll probably be up by the time this podcast comes out. So we are being shaped by media and social media and just these, these reels, these pictures, these little squares. Let's talk about that. What, obviously one of the, I think the biggest things that, um, not just young girls, but definitely young girls are doing on social media is watching, following, peeking in on the lives of quote unquote influencers. Yeah. Um, these people who, who often seem to have their lives put together pretty nicely mm-hmm. and, and have lots of opinions on things. So I guess taking a step back, what do you think about social media influencers? As you, you're a mom of, of some daughters. Yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it can be a dark world. Like we have to go in at discerning and, and we're often set passive consumers. And so I think it's this convergence of the internet and the available everywhere of, of con- media content, along with consumerism and capitalism, everything's been monetized, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where we are like branding ourselves. Yeah. Like, is this my aesthetic? Is this my brand? It's like, let me tell you about this cool thing I learned from the Bible today. And also yes. let me show you this new sponsored product that I'm, I'm promoting. Right. And so it's really, really tricky because we can approach social media with, I think, a pure heart and a desire to maybe steward it as a resource where we go to encourage ourselves and to encourage each other. But the line is so thin and it is so easily crossed. Mm. And we so quickly Um, are prone to stealing God's glory and promoting ourselves and looking to other people as our God rather than our Lord God above Mm. and looking to them for um, our teaching and truth and wisdom. When we have, you know, the word of God readily available to us, probably on the same phone where you're, you know, scrolling Instagram. Yeah. So I do think media saturation is one reason Mm. um, that we are really struggling with this. But we see this idolatry sanctioned in laws, in our cultural habits, in um, slogans and snippets and cliches that we say to each other and we see in headlines. I mean, it it is very pervasive. It's hard to get away from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dig into some of those those specific idols. Um, The first one that you mentioned is uh, outward beauty and ability. And uh, I think we all probably have some sense of outward beauty, what you mean by that, why that can be an idol, how that can be an idol. But maybe speak a little bit about ability. What do you mean by ability being an idol? Sure. Yeah. Well, I find as at first I was just going to write about outward beauty. At first it was just going to be about appearance. But as I began to dig into that specific idol, the reality was that the issue is we instrumentalize our bodies to Hmm. use to borrow a phrase from Nancy Piercy we turn our bodies into instruments so rather than you know thanking God for creating us the way that he did for being grateful for the the bodies that we have whether they're healthy or not healthy whether we uh, walk with a disability or not but just honoring the Lord for how he made us we want to turn our bodies into tools for somehow maybe our promotion. Um, we want to, you know, we already spoke about just the sort of branding ourselves online and being beautiful so that we can promote our particular product or our particular social media feed or whatever. But ability is really the same. We want to be able to say, here's what I can do. You know, 
oftentimes you hear parents say, you know, I don't care what my kids do. I just want them to grow up and be happy and be productive members of society. You know, we just have this uh, subconscious value of like, well, you've got to be doing something hmm. to be a helpful human. Yeah, You've got to be producing something. You've got yeah. to be moving some ball down the field. And so we by saying that and thinking that uncritically, we are discipling each other to think that only bodies that can do stuff hmm. are useful. Yeah. Do you think, is there, is that a particularly tempting idol for women or do you think it, it, it manifests in particular ways for women that might be different from men? I think it's probably something we all in the West struggle with because we are very much, you know, as I talked about my last book, Enough About Me, we're very much a do-it-yourself, pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of culture. And so if you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, then are you even worthwhile? Yeah, what good are you? Yeah. So I think men struggle with it a ton. I'd, I'm not in men's ministry, <laughs> but from the outside looking in, I think for sure men struggle with it because identity is so wrapped up in work and yeah. what am I producing at work and am I climbing the corporate ladder or doing anything beneficial? But women feel it too. And I think that women, um, you know, as we are perhaps slowed down by various seasons of life or by some sort of injury or disability that God deems, you know, fit for us, there is that question of, um, you know, am I, am I good for anything? Mm. And we have turned appearance and ability into an idol because we think if I don't have this, if I don't look like this, if my body can't do this, if I can't produce this, then I'm not worth anything. Mm -hmm. That's where I'll find my satisfaction. Yeah. And it's a lie. It's it's scary. It's evil. Yeah. So then let's uh, let's talk about that second idol, um, sex. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one that uh, again to a to a conservative Christian can kind of seem obvious. Um, but do you think there's there's ways in the last you know decade or so that the issue of sex, particularly among you know Christians, has changed or morphed? Has this become a different kind of idol than it maybe once was? Yeah, I think that we have idolized it in ways that we just don't realize. Hmm. And it's it sneaks up on us. I think we see it when, and this sort of goes to the fifth idol of marriage and motherhood, they're somewhat related, but you, you can get a sneaking suspicion that in the church we have idolized sexual intimacy when we feel sorry for the single people. When we go, man, I just, I can't imagine a life of celibacy. Hmm. You're all alone. You know, and we look away from cohabitation. We act like that's not that big a deal. Or even as we embrace homosexuality and put a stamp of approval on that, it's because we can't imagine that people would have to be alone that they wouldn't have sec a sexual partner. Mm. Um, and so I think we don't, we're not aware, but it yeah. creeps up when you, when, when everybody in the church is trying to fix up the single people, it's because subconsciously we can't imagine yeah. a life without that kind of intimacy. Mm. And so we have elevated then sexual encounters um, to a place where they don't belong. Yeah. It becomes something that you're almost less than human if you, you don't exactly. have that. Exactly. Mm. Yes, exactly. Right. That's interesting. So then um, another one, the issue of abortion, and this is obviously, uh, uh, it's been a quote unquote hot button issue for mm. a long, long time. Uh, and maybe this is one where um, more Christians are often more unified uh, in uh, opposition to mm. abortion. Mm -hmm. But I, I wonder, even with that, do you feel like you've seen among uh, Christians and maybe Christian women in particular, a, a loosening of convictions around abortion? I don't know. I think maybe so. I think we're probably seeing a loosening around convictions all over the place mm -hmm. because the cultural, you know, that rushing river current is just so strong. What alarms me a bit about the way we talk about abortion in the church is that so many women 
in the church have had one. And we aren't necessarily framing the conversation with sensitivity towards mm. these women. So having been in women's ministry, I mean, I have, I have a number of friends, um, women who are frequently share that, you know, sort of skeleton in the closet that they're afraid to talk about. They're not yeah. going to throw that out at women's Bible study, but it's something that, um, is has wounded them deeply and continues to wound them deeply. Mm. And so what I would love to see happen in the church is sort of a um, decriminalization of abortion. Maybe that's a weird way to put it, but instead of looking at like, oh, abortion is horrible. Women who do that are horrible. Why would they do that? Getting behind it and saying, what is leading to it? What is causing it? Why, why does somebody feel like they're in a position where abortion is the only option and have women talking about it from a place of compassion and a quickness to listen, a slowness to speak and to creating space where a wounded sister can share what the circumstances of her life were like that led her Mm. to think that that was her only option. So I think there's often in the church an us versus them conversation going on. You know, the people, the bad people out there that are having an abortion. Well, the reality is one, we're all bad people, but two, you know, there's women right here sitting next to you who've walked through this. What if we better understood what led to that? And what if we became part of the movement to address those issues? Mm. What if we all flooded pregnancy resource centers? What if we got involved with the immigrant community and single parent homes and people on the margins, the poor in our community, the unemployed? What if we rolled up our sleeves and got busy in the community where abortion seems to be their best option and and say, let's root out the reasons? Mm. Because the truth is abortion is something that harms women for life. And that's something that the pro-choice movement it, you know, is so loud and so winsome and so powerful that people don't often pause to understand the wounds that are long, lifelong. Mm. But do you think uh, church leaders perhaps uh, would be surprised at maybe how many women in their congregations have had an abortion? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think absolutely. There's um, because we're just so quiet about it. And I think we're afraid to talk about it. We don't know how to talk about it. I think, you know, that sexual sin inside the church is rampant. And so we feel like we can't talk about it. People feel like, well, who am I to say that? Like I had an extramarital affair or I, you know, had multiple sexual partners or this, you know, people in the church have participated in Mm. these sins. And then, so you feel like then you can't speak to them or, you know, and that, and if we would receive God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and, and be healed of those things that we've done in the past, Mm. then we could move in compassion to those who are still um, just reeling in their suffering and say, I've been there too. I've made these choices too. Let's seek our maker and our savior together and seek his healing. Yeah. So, so how would you describe then? What does it look like to, um, to have that compassion, have that, seek to have that understanding and uh, a gentle listening ear for women who have, um, struggled in this way and have this in their past. And yet still, uh, I think some people could hear that and think, uh, and sometimes it is that language is used as a sort of a distraction from, well, but but we actually also need to say that this is not right. We don't want to, 
we don't want to make excuses for right. this in some sense. So Absolutely. how do you hold those things together? I, I think it's a theological issue. It's a th- theology of creation. Who is God and who are we? What's his character and how did he make us? So if we could return to honoring these bodies that God has given us and, and praising him for the creation and the way that he created us and realizing these bodies are not our own. I don't get to spend my body the way I want to. Mm. This body belongs to him. So does my soul, my heart, everything, life and breath and everything comes from the hand of my God. So I think if we were constantly remembering who we are and whose we are, that we are created in the image of God and he is good and kind and went so far as to die on a cross on our behalf and then rose again victorious. If everything was couched in that truth rather than maybe some of the self-help messages that we're preaching to each other, some Mm. of the like good advice, well, here's the practical 10 steps to deal with this particular problem on a surface level, rather than going back constantly and remembering and reminding each other of the sovereignty and the kindness of our God and that the circumstances that we're in are not an accident and that he is able in the situation that we're in. Mm. I mean, that kind of covers it all, right? Yeah. Like the crisis that you're in, sister, I'm going to help you with it. We're going to choose life together because you're worth more. You were made for so much more mm. than cheap sex or abortion. Mm. You, were, you were designed to thrive as you abide in your Savior. And as a community, as a body of Christ, we're going to walk through this valley together. Yeah. You know, we can address things on the front and on the back and everywhere in between if we remember who we are and whose we are. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So then... Uh, maybe one of the most, if not the most, kind of contentious, controversial issues in our culture today um, revolves around the, the LGBTQIA plus movement, as you, that's the term that you use. Um, and I wonder, in what ways would you say this is a prominent, or real, potential idol for Christian Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I do. This was um, the whole book for me was uh, one that I wrote with fear and trepidation and prayer and Mm. tears. You know, it was just unpack um, that. Why is that? Oh, man, because all of these topics are like so scary. (laughs) Mm. All of these topics are so contentious. And I really wanted to write with a tone of compassion because that is what I feel each of these idols for me are idols that I have either struggled with myself or been burned by myself Mm. or dear friends. You know, as I wrote each chapter, I have the faces of friends, the DMS with friends, the emails and texts with friends, the face to face discipleship relationships. So none of them felt far off and I wanted to communicate just so, you Mm. know, in a way of communicating great grace, but also great truth. Do you say that um, thinking that oftentimes maybe Christians haven't, haven't, done that well? I think that's true. You know, but as I said earlier, I didn't grow up in Christian culture. Mm. So I know that oftentimes we are accused of lacking grace and that I'm sure that's true. I, I'm, I lack grace every day. So I know that's got to be true about us. Um, but to, to know that the body has wounded, I mean, we wound each other all the time and that is a grief and I don't want to contribute to that. Yeah, I want to you know, Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. I want to be a mouthpiece that communicates life, not death. And that's why finally I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write this book because I see what's bringing death and I want to bring life. Mm. So if God would allow me to be a conduit of life and that's why I felt willing, like, okay, this is scary and I'm so afraid I'm going to say it wrong. And even if I say it right, it might be read wrong, but I'm just going to trust the Lord that there, this will be a conduit of life in Mm. some way. Yeah. So yeah, to get back to that fourth idol that I wrote about, the LGBTQIA plus spectrum, um, that is huge. Like that, that issue, again, 
as old as humans are, nothing new under the sun. And I could have discussed each of those letters um, in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could have yeah. gone thousands of directions. There's lots of variety even within that, that yes. spectrum. Yes. So I was careful to just be very specific in this particular, particular chapter and really try to focus on especially ROGD, rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is something that is sweeping our civilization, Western civilization, um, especially teenage girls, young girls, young adult women, um, as well as the issue of homosexuality. And I know that, yeah, I just want to be so careful in the, even the way I talk about it on the podcast and the way I wrote about it in the book, because these, uh, these are friends of mine. These are dear friends of mine. What I think the temptation in Christian culture. So probably mostly Christians are going to read this book. It's going to be women in church, probably, who's going to pick this book up. I think the temptation that they feel, the idol in this specific scenario, more often than not, though not everybody for sure, will be the um, fear and unwillingness to talk about it. The, the, the issue just seems um, so scary and so like you can't actually say anything that is true or um, firm. You can't call on the authority of the word of God or the authority of anybody in this particular subject or you will be canceled. You'll be mm. written off. You're, you will divide, potentially divide your family or divide your church. You'll lose friends. You might lose business. Someone might look up your profile online and you're, you know, tell your employer and you'll get fired. You know, the stakes are starting to get higher. Um, And by, you know, next year and the year after, they're they're probably just going to get higher and higher. So I think the idol for Christian women is a, um, just a sort of submitting to culture rather than surrendering and submitting oneself to the word of God. So are you saying that you think Christian women need to be on social media posting, you know, (laughs) their opinions on all these things? Like, what does it look like to not surrender? Oh, man. Well, I think it looks, first of all, it looks like being in the word of God yourself and being convinced that he is our author and he has authority Hmm. and that his word has authority. Starts there. Have you seen that? Is there sometimes um, a, maybe even a, a kind of subtle preference to not even fully knowing yourself because you don't really want to have to land that plane for sure yeah it'd be scary well if i if i really believe if what the bible says then i'm gonna have to really believe that these decisions my dear friend or my child is making and so then i'm gonna have to walk that line where it's maybe yeah. just easier to go with the flow yeah because right now the flow is that counselors teachers practitioners doctors therapists are all gender affirming when it comes to rogd they're all saying, if your child thinks that they are the other gender, we must move forward swiftly with treatment, with puberty blockers, with hormones, with breast binding, with transition. Otherwise, your, your child will probably commit suicide. I mean, that's really the conversation is you've got to swiftly move forward. So in, insofar as we're speaking just about ROGD, um, I, want to, I want Christian moms and teachers and counselors and just people in the church, people who follow the Lord, To be willing to say the word of God is true, Mm. his spirit is able, and we can stand on this in a way that is loving and kind. So no, I don't want people going to social media and just blasting (laughs) the latest trend or news story or whatever. And I don't want to do that. I know that's tempting. Sometimes it's tempting to just, you know, can you believe it? And putting stuff out there. But I don't think that's really helpful. Um, I mean, each person's situation is unique and she can steward it the way she feels like God has given it to her. But I think... The bigger issue is being convinced as women who follow Jesus that he really did say what he said mm. and he really is able to help us in this situation and that we really can trust him 
to um, follow his follow him and follow what his word says. Yeah. It's going to be okay, even if we get canceled, mm-hmm. <laughs> even if we lose reputation and finances and businesses. That's okay. Peter tells us, you will be blessed if you are cursed for the name of Jesus. Mm. And I, my heart is that women would actually believe that. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's talk then about that last potential idol that you okay. mentioned, the one that maybe... Um, Maybe it doesn't seem like it, sh- it should be on the list, but I want to hear you explain why it is. That, that would be the idol of, of marriage and motherhood. Mm. So why did you put that on there? Sure. I know. Well, it's so funny. Anytime I talk about this book to somebody and you know, I'm listing off the five idols, one through four, they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I say five and they're like, whoa, what, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I realize, um, you know, throughout the book, I try to bring in the um, parable of the prodigal son. And I feel like those first four idols maybe identify really easily with the prodigal, with the younger brother who mm, took the inheritance yeah. of the father and he went out to the far country and he squandered all of his inheritance on reckless living. You know, those first four idols really match up with that. We are given good gifts and then we go and do crazy things with them. But the older brother, you know, he stayed home and pursued his identity and his worth in his morality, in doing what was expected and following the rules, not for the pleasure of the father, not out of a relationship of love and um, a desire to bring his father glory and to honor his dad, but to get what was coming to him because he earned it. Mm, So, and that's the old older brother sort of then is in this fifth idol. Um, and, and it was for me writing this was actually really convicting myself because I realized even though I didn't grow up in the church, I have absorbed some of these false ideas that, um, you know, you've really arrived once you've gotten yeah, married and yeah. once you've become a mom. Um, but some, and, and something I feel like, you know, I've heard in my own church from other women and something I hear frequently is motherhood is a woman's highest calling. And that is not true. That is a damaging lie. Mm. And I know that it's, you know, maybe we say it flippantly without really thinking it through. And that was my desire was in this chapter. Let's actually, is, is that true? Why do we think that? Yeah. Why do we say that? And yeah. so, so why do you say that? Someone listening right now might be feeling a little bit of like, I, I say that. I think that's true. <laughs> sure. I know that's true. So, well, God created us women. He created Eve um, as their a helper to Adam. Um, but that word, man, it's such, it was so fun to study the word as My chapter eight in this book is called, it's, or chapter nine, it's good to be a girl. And mm. I just loved diving into that a little bit more um, because the word as of course, is not just helper, but it's things, it, there's, it's like defender and it's powerful and it's a strong. It's a term that's used of God in different places, yes, right? Yes, 16 places in the Old Testament, God is called as in terms of delivering and defending and helping his people. Mm. Um, so that word helper really is so multifaceted. Um, but yeah, I think in the church, I think what has happened in response to the sexual revolution, in response to like just the swift current that we've seen over the last several decades, the secular society around us has said, the best thing is for you to have multiple sexual partners. The best thing is for you to you know sleep around, cohabitate, have an abortion, whatever, try on multiple sexual identities, try on multiple genders. Um, your highest good is going to be found in multiple ways of expressing yourself sexually. The church has rightly, you know, said that is wrong. 
the church has said, no, this, the sexual revolution got so many things wrong. Um, and we want to defend the institution of marriage because it is designed by God for our good. And that's all true. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree with that at all. Marriage is a gift of God. It is designed by him. He created us male and female to procreate and to, for the flourishing, for your flourishing and mine, that we would bring up generation upon generation in the safety and protection and nourishment of a family. So it is, is a good gift 100%. But I think in an attempt to swing the pendulum away from secularism and what we have done with sexuality, we have um, then put marriage and motherhood on a pedestal hmm. that it was never meant to be placed on. And we've subconsciously, again, as I said earlier, when we're ta talking about how we address single people in our church, you know, we've subconsciously regurgitated this message to each other that it's better to be married and it's better to have children. And you have not really arrived as a mature disciple of Jesus mm. until you have reached th those plateaus. Mm. And that's just not in the word of God. <laughs> you yeah. won't find that in scripture. Yeah. And so we're saying, we're putting something in the word that's not there. I and are harming there, people. Are there other things that are often done or said, you know, in the, the broad church um, beyond things like, you know, saying marriage and, or motherhood is the highest calling mm -hmm. of a Christian woman that, that you think kind of contribute or expressions of this imbalanced view? Yes, I do think so. And again, this might be, this is sort of maybe a benefit of growing up outside the church. Um, so my husband and I did not really go through the purity culture of mm. the 1990s and the early 2000s. Um, we sort of saw it on the out. We married in 1999 and we were believers then. So we sort of sat on the sidelines as we saw purity culture taking place. Um, the purity movement, the sort of, you know, putting a ring, your dad puts a ring on your finger for your purity or whatever until you get married and the purity balls and the purity promises. Um, we, and, and I, I critique that and I critique everything else in my book as as a sister. You know, I, I don't mean to be coming at this and saying, boy, you guys really screwed that up. Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's you're not coming from a position of like, you're just so, so silly. How yeah. Do do I don't mean to condemn. Like, I feel like, again, that came from a good place, a desire of um, we have made sex a God in this culture. And so in the church, we're going to say, you know, no, abstinence is better. But then I think maybe we turned abstinence into the God. Mm. You know, we turned purity into the God. Unfortunately, we began to bow down at the idol of modesty and purity. And it became this sort of works righteousness. Like you, what we, what we were saying in youth group and what they were saying on college campuses is, you can have the best marriage and you can have the best future if you save yourself mm. for that person. So yeah. don't have sex now and earn your best life later. Yeah. And it became, um, it became a, a form of legalism. Maybe it started from a good place, but I think the, the message that many teens and college students heard was, I can earn my future happiness and my future prosperity, my future healthy, amazing marriage. I can earn it. Yeah. And so those people are all married now or maybe divorced or still single, you know, and mm. that the fruit of it has proved rotten Yeah. because again, marriage and motherhood were not meant to sustain the weight that we place on them. They weren't meant to be our God. So it's not about belittling or devaluing marriage and motherhood. It's about just putting them in their proper place. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Not asking them to do more than they were supposed to do. Exactly. If we are looking for our identity and our satisfaction in marriage or motherhood, we will be terribly disappointed because they will not deliver. 
they will not deliver the soul deep satisfaction and peace that only Jesus himself can give us. Do you feel like you've had to, to learn that over the years of, of marriage and motherhood? Oh, for sure. I mean, I had to learn it in all of these areas. I, I've, I've turned things, I can turn something into an idol in five minutes. It's, mm. a, it's not hard to put my hope in something temporary yeah. very quickly. Yeah. But nothing and no one can sustain it. Only God in heaven can give us that kind of satisfaction. He is our maker. And as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Mm, yeah. Maybe as a last question, your second to last chapter, you've already mentioned it, is, is, called, is entitled, It's Good to Be a Girl. Mm. Do you think it's important to say that and be reminded of that in our cultural moment today? I do. Absolutely. As I said, sort of at the beginning of this podcast, in many subconscious ways, I think the male body was normed. The male way of life has been normed. And I don't mean to like, you know, claim victimhood status as a woman, but raising four girls and being in women's ministry, I'm just always conscious of how can I help you celebrate that God made you a girl? Mm. We see women devalued in secular society, and I think oftentimes we see women devalued in the church, whether it's on accident or on purpose. I mean, it's our sin nature. We devalue each other. Mm. We, de- you know, we devalue the human body. That's kind of what the whole book um, mm. sort of points to. And so I want to just be raising my daughters to realize that God created us male and female female and that was good. The expression of his image needed both genders. He didn't just stop with Adam. He he made Eve as well in order to fully express his image amongst us, his humans. And so I want to just be looking for ways to celebrate that. I feel like so often we're coming at the conversation from the perspective of, well, here's what you can't do. And here's the boundaries. And here's what's not allowed. When there is a massive conversation and celebration that we could be having instead of, who did God make you to be? What are your circumstances? What are your giftings and callings? And let's go for it by mm. his power and for his glory. Let's run after that good gift. So I just want to reframe the conversation to one that is life-giving and joy-giving. I want to lead women away from these idols that are hurting them, that are destroyed. They overpromise and underdeliver. I want to just come alongside women as they read and say, come with me. This path leads to death, but the path, the narrow path of Jesus leads to life. And it's such a good life. Mm. Let's go there. Mm. Well, Jen, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us. And uh, yeah, help us to hopefully better identify some of these idols, but then as you say, uh, to quickly turn our gaze to Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, Matt. That was Jen Oshman on some key idols of our age. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, Cultural Counterfeits, Confronting Five Empty Promises of Our Age, and how we were made for so much more. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.